1: LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: You're on Team Human, safe harbor from the storm. A shot of immunity from viruses, both biological and cultural. We may be distanced, but we are still quite social. My mind to your mind, my thoughts to your thoughts. The vibration you feel is real. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Author of the long-emergency books and world-made-by-hand novels, James Howard Kunstler.
0: We're going to need everybody to put their shoulder to the wheel and get this society back up again, perhaps in a different posture. Perhaps we will be walking forward differently, and let's hope that it is in a more upright posture. Jim will be explaining how we got into this mess and what sort of world
1: we can build together afterwards, if we're wise enough to get the message this time. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. No ads for mattresses or email spamming services here. Just a plea for your support. Come to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can get books, access to my articles on Medium, the satisfaction of participating actively in this project, and our gratitude. Be like Zach Ager. Stephen Kiasik, Jezariah Hopkins, Audrey Sillan, and Melinda Barnes, and keep our tiny team alive. Well, if nothing else, this virus has been educational. We're learning about the American way and some of the reasons why we've had the worst response to the pandemic among the so-called developed world. Many Americans including our president, believe that shutting down the nation and social distancing is an overreaction and that we should just get back to work. Yeah, allowing people to go back to work could lead to more widespread infection, but the deaths of a few hundred thousand, if not a few million more of us, is a small price to pay for rescuing the American economy from collapse. In Trump's words, we can't have the cure be worse than the problem itself. the message is clear. The economy is not here to serve human beings. Human beings are here to serve the economy. Those of us who die in the service to the Dow Jones are merely externalities to the higher priority of capital growth. Like the destruction of the environment, our illnesses and deaths are a necessary cost of doing business. We can't surrender to the depressing verdicts of doctors and scientists or we're going to deflate the hope and optimism that make America great. Those who will benefit most from our sacrifice, the billionaires whose fortunes are based almost solely on the economy's continuing ability to grow, they're already preparing for their escape. They're booking private jets and heading to their private doomsday compounds. It's a variation of the insulation equation I wrote about a couple of years ago after I met a group of billionaires who wanted advice on how to maintain security for their doomsday bunkers in event of societal collapse. The object of the game, as they see it, is earn enough money to insulate themselves from the very damage their ventures have both directly and indirectly created in the first place. It's this self-perpetuating nightmare. The more environmental and social damage they do, the more money they have to earn to protect themselves from the devastation they leave in their wake and the more committed they become to saving their own asses and leaving the rest of us behind when a real crisis emerges. Now, to be fair, this worldview is just a natural extension of a market ideology that already accepted human casualties as a metric on the balance sheet. To quote Trump, you look at automobile accidents, which are far greater than any numbers we're talking about. That doesn't mean we're going to tell everybody no more driving of cars. He's got a point there. We calculate the relative cost of human lives every day as we go about our business, and we accept the trade off between the cost of making an automobile safe and the need to make it profitable. This is the American way. As the lieutenant governor from Texas, Dan Patrick, he told Tucker Carlson on Monday, no one reached out to me and said, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? If that's the exchange, I'm all in. Do you get it? I mean, the underlying premise there is really simple, that our coronavirus shutdown stalls the God-ordained expansion of the U.S. economy. It's this misguided preservation of the weak and elderly. Are we really going to let our great market go belly up for them? That's the underlying argument of fascism, where we stop making decisions on behalf of the losers and start making them on behalf of the winners. Besides, as Ayn Rand taught us, the more we cater to the weak, the more we weaken ourselves as a society and a gene pool. This is natural selection in action. Of course, most of the people arguing that we take these public health risks, they're themselves in little or no danger at all. They've got private concierge doctors working round the clock to obtain necessary tests and ventilators in case they can't make it to their hideaways in time. No, the risks are being entirely borne by those of us who can't afford such measures. It's a lot easier for the wealthy to hang on to their positivity. To be fair, though, there's an internal logic to their approach, and it's one as old as the American spirit of optimism. When Trump tore into a TV reporter, as he really likes to do, who asked that he respond to Americans who fear for their lives, he wasn't simply obfuscating. When he yells at these reporters, he's chastising them for undermining America's ability to apply positive thinking to the crisis. Remember, Trump was raised in the church of Norman Vincent Peale. He's the author of that massively influential book, The Power of Positive Thinking. That was the source material for every bootstrapping spiritual movement from the prosperity gospel to the secret. From the age of six, Trump was sitting in the pews with his family at Norman Vincent Peale's Marble Collegiate Church, listening to the sermons about how we can create the success we want through visualizing it. He said, formulate and staple indelibly on your mind a mental picture of yourself as succeeding and never give in to the fear thoughts. That's what Trump believes. So for him and his ilk, the choice to talk and act positively in the face of all evidence to the contrary, it's not cynical behavior. As late as 2009, when he was more than a billion dollars in debt and facing total foreclosure and bankruptcy, he said he depended on the power of being positive. He was in a, a Psychology Today interview and he said, what helped is I refused to give in to the negative circumstances and never lost faith in myself. I didn't believe I was finished even when the newspapers were saying so. So if you want to see this in the very best light, Trump is just attempting to apply the power of positive thinking to the economy and to the virus. And there's some sense in this. Markets are emotional. There's nothing like hope for the future to justify high price earnings ratios, to stoke consumer spending and spur investment. But can hope kill the virus? I mean, the placebo effect is real. So can we think and grow healthy the way Napoleon Hill told us to think and grow rich? That would be reason enough to keep a doom and gloom scientist like Anthony Fauci off the stage at press conferences. But not even Trump is enough of a true believer to believe positive thinking can wipe out the virus single handedly. It can, however, galvanize our resolve, however foolishly. That's why he's calling on us to make sacrifices and to essentially wish the virus away. For those titans of industry, depending on perpetual economic growth, an extended shutdown actually poses a greater risk than meets the eye. The longer we pause from business as usual, the more time we all have to reevaluate the economy we've been born into. I mean, yes, we need food, water, shelter, and maybe a communications infrastructure, But not a heck of a lot else. And at times like this, we can see the value in farmers, in teachers, in doctors. But all those guys in suits going to the city to trade derivatives and make marketing plans and coordinate global supply chains, not so much. The real danger here, what billionaire preppers understand, is that any one of these black swan phenomena, they could be the event that destroys our willingness to keep running on the hamster wheel. They want us to go back to work. But for what? They say it's to save the economy, but they're not talking about the real economy of goods and services. The American economy they're concerned about, it's based primarily on debt. Banks lend money to businesses who then pay it back with interest. Where does the interest come from? Growth. Without growth, the whole house of cards comes down, along with the wealthiest among us. We all have to believe in order to keep the hope alive and the billionaires in their bunkers. As far as the ultra-wealthy are concerned, the virus to be afraid of is less a medical challenge than a memetic one. We're waking up to the fact that we've been slaves to an exponential growth curve for the past 40 years at least, and really much longer. And we're witnessing how the same exponential growth that gave billionaires their fortunes is responsible for the fact that 40% of Americans have less than $400 in the bank for an emergency. The need for exponential growth, it also explains how we surrendered basic manufacturing and food resiliency to tenuous global supply chains. Sure, we can go back to work, but we can't even make our own respirators. Imagine instead if our main reason for returning to work was to make and do things people actually need to live good lives instead of simply doing our part to keep the wealthy safely protected from the rest of us. Now that's some positive thinking. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, the author of the most timely book ever, Living in the Long Emergency, James Howard Kunstler. It feels to me like we're that we're over the event horizon of a slow motion apocalypse, I mean, something that you've been writing about for a long time. And I've been hoping to evade one way or another. But it feels like now this is a, that moment when you know the car's going to crash into the tree and time slows down and you can see it approaching. But there's not much that can be done.
0: Kind of feels that way a little bit. By the way, I never called it an apocalypse and I never regarded it as a, an apocalypse. I regarded it as a change that we were going to go through and perhaps a pretty severe one, and I called it the long emergency for a reason, uh namely that it was probably going to take a long time to work out. There's the beginning of the event itself and the event is going to be probably pretty disorderly and and when the dust settles from that we then are faced with the job of uh reorganizing our lives. That will ultimately be uh an emergent process in the classic sense of the word emergence right
1: i mean and, and emergence is a is a in some ways a very positive term at least right now. It feels like uh, certainly um coronavirus, but you know other challenges that we're facing they're revealing the failure of this end stage industrial economy and society to address the real challenges of living together on a planet. Our global supply chain has been revealed as a farce that it's disabled competence. You know, we have no distributed competence. We can't even make a friggin' ventilator, which we could have made in the 1940s. It yeah. seems like we can't make that now. Obviously, this system's been this brittle all along, or certainly for the past 40 or 50 years.
0: Well, it is becoming increasingly and progressively brittle, but didn't necessarily start out that way. And uh, I refer you to my new theory of history, which I've been uh, trying to put over for the last few years, which is pretty simple. Things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time. You know, we made a series of choices that seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, at least to some people. And there was enough of a political consensus to put it over. For example, the whole idea of offshoring all of our industry—that seemed like a good idea at the time, especially to global corporations, because they were going to reduce their labor costs hugely and uh, may have more profits for themselves and their shareholders, and more bonuses for their executives. So that seemed like a great idea. And now, all of a sudden, you know, you turn around and oh, times have changed, and it doesn't seem like such a good idea anymore. But, you know, you have to remember that, in essence, the political process in in the USA allowed that to happen. We did form a consensus that that was okay, that that was a cool thing to do. And we did it. And now, uh, you know, we're faced with the problem of having made a pretty bad choice. There are some other elements of what you referred to that uh, are worth uh, going over. One is that there's been a real divorce between the financial and banking parts of the economy and the economy itself. And now they are standing out very starkly for all to see because, you know, there's the financial and banking sector, and then there's the sector that is real human activity doing things and producing things. And with much of the world under lockdown, that part of our reality is no longer working. And so we see that finance and banking are standing alone apart from this this other real economy that is doing nothing. And we can see the that the machinations that are being used really don't have any meaning to the real economy. The financial bailouts and machinations and, you know, loans that are being created that'll never be paid back and shenanigans with sovereign debt, you know, are now standing naked and people can see that they they're lacking reality. And I feel like people are also,
1: though, they're seeing that closer to home in the way that Right now, as most people are home or stuck, it becomes very clear what our real needs are, right? We need food, we need shelter, we need heat maybe. But all the guys who've been, and I call them guys, I mean, there's women too, who go down to the train station every morning and wear their suits and go to those cubicles, they're kind of being exposed as unnecessary. I mean, what are these people doing? I mean, it sounds so foolish to ask it like this, but what are these people doing? Do you know what I mean? What are are all these jobs? All the people who are going in to do the mergers and acquisitions for Credit Suisse or the mortgage actuarial work or the the sales figures for some corporation next year, they're not farmers, they're not doctors, they're not teachers. What are they really doing? Why are their jobs even necessary?
0: Well, a lot of them were dedicated to the operations of finance which more and more became a set of swindles and frauds right and workarounds for a real economy L- let's remember that you know money only represents capital it isn't capital per se when it isn't functioning it stops being money and it can only function in the setup that we've got when debts are being paid back because money is created out of debt by creating Basically, promissory notes, and when those promises aren't kept and the debt can't be paid back, then the money stops really representing anything real. But the people making that money are the largest part of the economy. I mean, well, they were they're not to the be largest, but they're pretty darn big, you right? Know? And now they're the only ones that are, that are standing because everybody else is locked down. Uh, what they've got is uh, a black hole. In the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, into which all of the money that's lost its value is getting sucked in, and uh, so the money's rushing in to that black hole at the Federal Reserve uh, at a fantastic rate, and the Fed is trying to spew out new money at an equal rate to replace that money, and uh, you know, raising the question whether it's even money anymore or just a, a figment of a larger hallucination, you know, or the consequences of a swindle. You know, they brought out their biggest money-launching bazookas a few days ago, and it may only be a few more days before that salvo proves to be inadequate. You know, the the jig is kind of up with all that stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I used to work in the operating room when I was in college, and there's a point in a surgery where they just start throw in more fluids and blood into the person. It's like, well, and it's like, wait a minute. Obviously it's leaking somewhere inside them. If we don't figure out that, you know, you can put up as much fluid as you want and it's not going to increase their blood pressure. So there's that. And there's the way that this financial system has rendered us less capable of dealing with the crisis so that if you're in a town like mine and you have a you know a 1000 mile supply chain for food rather than a 50 mile one which would be a lot easier and and sustainable it's that much harder for us to you know survive or sustain ourselves through a crisis like this.
0: Sure, and those the, you know that represents another set of choices that we made about you know how we were going to behave and do things, and uh, that's proving to not be such a good idea now. Uh, so it raises the question: How can we get back to a more resilient and redundant ecosystem? Human ecosystem, like all ecosystems, uh, they work best when there's a lot of fine-grained redundancy, um, which is to say you know, a lot of different uh, people or actors or agents or entities that that are doing essentially the same thing so that when some of them are injured or go down, uh, the rest of them can pull the weight for the rest of the system and the system doesn't uh, collapse. But we've set set things up so that we have these extraordinary fragilities and a lack of redundancy so that one thing goes not only does the system really hurt, but it starts to set in motion other cascading fragilities. They're, they ramify each other, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, you know let, let's remember on the plus side, there are a lot of assets that are still in place and a lot of things that represent different sorts of capital that are still in place, besides you know stocks, bonds, and dollars. And other currencies, you know, we do have a lot of material stuff, you know, on the landscape, buildings, and even factories, even some factories that can make things, and we have uh, hydroelectric uh, stations, and we've got all kinds of useful things and tools, and and farm equipment, and vehicles, and things that we can run. But uh, you know, in the meantime, the collapse of the elaborate unfragile, anti-fragile systems that we've erected, along with the troubles that have evolved in the flow of capital, are threatening to interrupt all the things that we're doing and making it difficult for us to use the capital that we have. And by the way, the capital includes a lot of human capital that you kind of obliquely referenced, which is, you know, the, the ability of people to innovate things and intelligently come up with responses to emergencies.
1: And those are also, I mean, under threat, both of these things. I mean, on the one hand, our equipment manufacturers are increasingly trying to take power away from the users of the equipment. So you have farmers and construction workers complaining
0: about the automation of their equipment. You know, it's also in the nature of emergence that people were kind of annoyed by that up to this point. But now they're going to be pissed off about it to the degree that they will work around it. And they'll do everything possible to create new machines that are far less complex and, you know, give them the power back to fix things. And that, that'll that happen emergently, too. So, you know, you know, we went along with these arrangements and, and with scams like that. When the hammer comes down, you can believe that we're, you know, we're certainly capable of creating, uh, you know, farm machines that each farmer can fix. Yeah. I mean,
1: I would think so. Cause I mean, I remember when I used to complain in my thirties and forties that now I can't change the spark plugs on my own car, you know? And I know I sounded like some crazy old man, but you can't survive the zombie apocalypse if you need a Chevy dealer to fix your car you
0: know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially if he's turned into a zombie.
1: Right. There, there you go. Right. I mean, cause you want to be able to have a wrench and fix something. I mean, there's this trade off, I guess, with the uh, computerization of everything. But when I look at, the conditions that gave rise to this virus, I'm reminded of the late Middle Ages in Europe. It seems to me it's a replay of the conditions that led to the plague
0: in medieval Europe. Um, I mean, the plague really came on uh, on ships from Asia and Asia Minor into Venice and then spread from there. And people weren't really going to factories, but they, you know, I mean, they were living in towns and cities and they weren't big cities of the kind we have now, but they were big enough so that transmission occurred pretty easily. Public health and hygiene was pretty low and a lot of people had uh, fleas and fleas lived on rats and they went back and forth between rats and people along with the uh, Eurystis pestina bacteria. So this plague spread. I don't know if it's exactly analogous, but you know, diseases has certainly been with humanity for a long time and we certainly knew that, you know, they were lurking out there. I, I wrote a whole chapter about epidemic and pandemic disease in my 2005 book, The Long Emergency. I did think at the time that that was going to be one of the things that would sandbag us when the time came, uh, and it has. But it is important to realize that the financial train wreck that we're now watching was already well underway six months ago before coronavirus was even on the radar screen. So- It's just an unfortunate convergence of two really bad situations that are now ramifying each other in a terrifying way.
1: What did you see it in particular over the last you know six months that wasn't evident over the last six years say
0: it, you know it's more a matter of just the strange and extraordinary continuous um ramping up of the of the stock market indexes. It was a supernatural thing there was something that was obviously wrong with that, but since so many people were benefiting from it, there was no real debate about it. It didn't change the consensus. And everybody really knew who was paying attention that it was due to the shenanigans going on in the Federal Reserve and the banking system and all of the money that they've been pumping into the system from nowhere for the last uh, 11 years, you know, or what, since the uh, crash of 2008 and nine. And everybody knew that, you know, everybody knew that it was a train wreck waiting to happen, but they were benefiting from it.
1: But now, if they pump two trillion or what will be five or ten trillion by the time they're done dollars into the economy, doesn't that all end up kind of trickling back up into the same coffers? Won't that make the stock market go up
0: eventually? Well, that's a very perverse thing because, uh, it, well, it did for two, three days, just you know, the beginning of this week. And now, look, you know, again, it's uh, it's being hammered, and uh, that's because people, you know, don't believe it. And they don't believe it for the simple reason that, uh, you know, financial markets can't zoom way up when absolutely nobody is producing anything anywhere in the world. You know, when the world is under lockdown, there is a visibly and sharply visibly a complete divorce between productive activity and stock market activity. That's when you know that the stock market and the financial ship Uh, has uh, sailed away uh, from the port. It's on its own. It's not connected to what's going on on land anymore. And do you think it will reconnect or do you think it's gone? Well, it it kind of depends on how much damage is done in the meantime. Uh, and it it also depends on how many relationships, economic relationships that were previously in operation are actually restored. And I think we can state at this point that quite a few of them obviously won't be, especially the distance supply lines. That whole issue is going to change uh, sharply and quickly. We've got whole industries that are just have undergone insane hyper growth that obviously couldn't be sustained, you know, things like the cruise line industry and the amount of flying that people were doing and the adjuncts of all that. But of course, as we shift, though, from these inefficient and unsustainable global
1: supply chains and top heavy corporations to more sustainable, circular, distributed models of production, the opportunities for sort of corporate extraction from the economy go away. They reduce.
0: Yeah. And then the corporations go away. And
1: the billionaires lose some of their access to the billions they've been sucking out of the system.
0: Yeah. And, and they're trying, in some cases, they're trying desperately to get them back right now, like Boeing, trying to uh, get bailed out. When in fact, Boeing should be allowed to go bankrupt. And if there is a- an aviation system after the dust settles, then you know somebody else can buy up Boeing for dimes or pennies on the dollar, and they can have an aircraft factory. The factories are still there, and the um, machines are still there, and the workers can be called back you know we don't we don't want to even allow that to happen and there are an awful lot of companies I suppose that should be allowed to go bankrupt and be bought up for pennies on the dollar and then we 'll see whether they 're viable industries you know I doubt that the cruise ship industry is going to be cruise ship industry anymore, but they do have a lot of ships and we may decide that we're going to use them for crossing the oceans instead of airplanes. You know, maybe maybe we need to have more people traveling by uh, ship rather than by air. Maybe that will be one workaround for the kinds of problems that we're reaching. Or or maybe, you know, people will not be traveling very much at all. We don't know yet. I, I have to add at this point, you know, I've been thinking about these things for at least 20 years and i wrote those four novels uh, in the world made by hand series for the purpose of depicting exactly w- where the journey would take us you know where are where the landing point was after a, an economic collapse
1: and the world made by hand novels for people who haven't read them these are adventures but they're Oddly comforting at the same time because the people's feet are on the ground and there's a a crisis that you know destabilizes America to the point where everybody's just living in their own little towns or at least everybody we know about. Everything's become local and handmade. It's sort of like uh, people living largely like we would imagine the Amish. But there's several different strategies we see in this world. There's sort of regular townspeople just trying to get by. There's a new Christian kind of religious cult using that as their organization, and they have faith, and there's a bit of magic there. There's a small, almost feudal empire farm, factory place run by, you know, one guy. And we get to see in these scenarios that you've painted out how these different strategies would work and interact in this, you know, uh, post-industrial world that we'd be living in. And the strangest thing for me about these novels and I'm sure it's that's part of the guilty pleasure for almost everybody reading them is how aspirational these worlds are. I know there's a lot of difficulty, right? There's not great doctors and anesthesia and all, but it looks in many ways like a more satisfying existence than what we're experiencing now.
0: Yeah. And that that was deliberate. It's not that I'm you know relishing the idea of letting modernity go. But the whole point of the book was to show that human beings will carry on and that we will still have access to the joys and pleasures of being alive in this very wonderful world, but at a different scale of operation. And and so, you know, I deliberately said it in a small town uh, in upstate New York, which is a coherently bounded world where there's only so much stuff that is happening. And um Uh, You know, I I do think that there's a possibility that that that's where things finally take us. But it it is largely a, a question for now about how much disorder we have to endure to get to that place. The novels are depicted as taking place sometime after the dust has settled in these economic train wrecks. People have been allowed to forge new arrangements for themselves, and now they're up and running
1: and i mean we get to see the more suburban and rural areas i mean we haven't at least in the books i've read so far we haven't ventured all the way into the major cities you know <laughs> I haven't seen new york or chicago or what's going on there but they're described as pretty scary
0: you get a lot of information about it you know i was um uh very frugal with the information that i was giving out about what had happened in the quote outside world and in the third book of the series which was titled A History of the Future. Uh, The young 20-year-old son of one of the main characters in, in the whole series, Uh, has gone out to see what happened in the heartland of America.
1: And he basically finds the reconstituted American government as well as a reconstituted, almost a confederacy, which is interesting too. I mean, in some ways it's hard to see the difference (laughs) between the two.
0: What he actually does find is that uh, the remnant of the federal government is now kind of rehomed on the remote coast of uh, Lake Michigan in a small uh, town and, and an island adjacent to it. M- much of the Mid-South has been reorganized into a kind of a fascist state called that calls itself the Foxfire Republic, led by a woman who is a former uh, country singer and TV evangelist, who I uh, like to call uh, Dolly Parton meets Hitler. And uh, the Foxfire Republic is at war with uh, a other breakaway ap- republic in the deep south that calls itself New Africa, led by uh, a guy who is a former check-cashing mogul. And we learned very little about what's happened on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. That's kind of how the, the story of the U.S. resolves to that point.
1: But the part that's most interesting to me in that fiction is in these books, magic, for lack of a better word, magic or faith or supernatural kind of stuff actually begins to work. And it felt to me almost as if what you were saying was, as we get quiet, as the all the technological noise of our civilization quiets down, these more subtle abilities or innate abilities that humans have to understand what's going on somewhere that they're not, or to look into someone else's mind and really see if they're lying or telling the truth, that these abilities maybe will emerge. It's almost a,
0: do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, uh, you know, there, there's a more precise way even of, under, of understanding it. And what I was trying to depict was the reenchantment of human life and the reenchantment of the human experience. Now, I'm not a particular believer in religion or supernatural stuff. But you know the way the the novels are designed. There are these several principal groups that you that you talked about. One of them are the the regular townspeople who are very psychologically depressed by the losses that they've endured, and then there's a group of evangelicals who have come up from Virginia, which has been a very disorderly place when they left it, and they've settled in upstate New York uh, to be you know, away from the problems. And they have bought the uh, decommissioned high school and set it up as their commune, really. The way that they see the world is a contrast to the demoralization of the regular townspeople, because they're, for one thing, they're very enterprising. You know, they are going about the business of setting up uh, a viable community for themselves. You know, they've turned the athletic fields into very large gardens and they've set up in the mule breeding business so that people can, you know, have draft animals and they, they're very competent, but they also have a, uh, you know, they're, they're evangelicals and they have a spiritual side to them. And to some extent, you know, they exhibit some kind of supernatural abilities And that was supposed to be in in contrast to the people, the regular people who have been demoralized by modernity and and the loss of modernity and all of the comforts and conveniences.
1: And in some respects, though, modernity existed to reduce enchantment. I mean, I feel like I always talk about Francis Bacon and, you know, trying to grab nature by the hair and hold her down and subdue her to our will. It was about reducing the novelty and weirdness of the world in which we live
0: and the world is enchanted just the fantastic magic of of what we call nature is itself a, a form of enchantment so the question then is you know how much in or out of tune with that do you become as we decided to live more and more a virtual life in all those uh, operations of modernity, whether there was, it was watching TV or uh, living in your computer or being in the movies all the time or things like that, we disenchanted ourselves. And when you reconnect with nature, as the characters do in this book, and with human nature and with, with the strange operations of the universe, you know something kind of magical does happen.
1: Right. And you don't need to be a believer in something weird to get no. that.
0: No. You just have to open yourself up to it.
1: Right. But, you know, what we've been getting uh, gosh everywhere from school to government and and certainly in the mostly on the progressive side of things is the opposite is this almost technocratic I feel like since Sputnik, you know, it's as if we're taught trig and calculus and reality and we get this kind of Bill Gates slash Barack Obama technocratic solutionist understanding of the world, this kind of cold, as if there's this kind of cold stem rationality that will solve our problems.
0: That's why I call it techno-narcissism. You know, a a term that I uh, flung around quite a bit in that book, Too Much Magic, from 2012. And, you know, the techno-narcissists are the people who uh, believe that, that we can divorce ourselves from, from nature and then ultimately divorce ourselves from reality because that's exactly what happened in the financial sector.
1: Right, but the same folks who are the wealthiest, you know, tech guys think, yeah, the financialization and abstraction of the markets—we might as well imitate that and move into a simulation or upload our brains to the to the chip if we're not already in a simulation, as they would argue.
0: Yeah, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and now, <laughs> and now history is deciding that mm, maybe times have changed and it's not such a good idea anymore. But. Most of the folks that I talk to who want to solve these problems, not all, but most still think that the way
1: out is through, that somehow, yes, if maybe we only have 30 uh, harvests left on our topsoil, but that just means we're all the more dependent on a Monsanto to figure out how to grow grapes on a rock.
0: You know, that's nature's way of telling you, you got to try something different. And and it's a harsh lesson to learn, but it's one that we're getting, you know, fast and hard and And it's happening right now. It gets back to that uh, old Schopenhauer formulation that when people greet new ideas, they first greet it with ridicule, then they violently oppose it, and then they accept it as self-evident. You know, so there's a kind of a flip-flop after that, you know, those first two things happen, and then they flip-flop into uh, acceptance. You know, it's kind of a, short, a shorthand for the uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, spectrum of mm. the denial of death. It'll become self-evident that we have to grow our food differently. It'll become self-evident that we have to downscale American life. It'll be self-evident that we have to move more things on our inland waterway system and our rivers and, and Great Lakes. And, and it'll be self-evident that we have to produce more things in locally, uh, however we can. It'll be self-evident that we have to live more frugally, that we're going to have to probably not travel as much as we used to. And all kinds of new culture, cultural artifacts will assemble, self-assemble around that. The challenge
1: is that people will start liking that more. I mean that's almost the thing that's the scariest. I just I wrote I wrote a piece about this that the the great fear of the billionaires even greater than the the fear that's driving them to their bunkers is that this emergency will wake people up to the fact that they've been working for the man, that they are <laughs> that they are tired, that their quality of life has gotten worse the more money and the more jobs that they have and that we don't need to support the exponential growth of this economy anymore. That's not our job.
0: Well, not only that, but it, you know, we just may not be able to, whether it is our job or we think it's our job or we like it or not. you know, A lot of this stuff is coming at us, whether we like it or not, and we're just going to have to accommodate ourselves to it. Right. What you just described a minute and a half ago was the loss of uh, community, which people are pretty sensitive about. They, they do understand that they've lost something and it's hard for them to put their finger on exactly what it is, but it, it really has to do with the richness of communing with other people directly. And that's exactly what corporate America took away from them in commoditizing all of the entertainment and all of the social networking and all the things that people used to do naturally. And they turned them into commodities so that, uh, in a place like the place that that I live in, a small New England town of 2,500 people, you know, up until now, really, when everybody's locked in, people just stayed in front of their, their computer screens or their flat screen and they didn't go out at night. You know, we're going to discover that it's probably much more satisfying to uh, hang out with people you know and people who you work with and and people that you have uh, important shared interests with and to make music with them and to dance with them and, and uh, consort with them and to not, Uh, have such rich relationships with fictional characters on television.
1: It sounds nerdy or foolish to most listeners, but, you know, when I think about growing up in the 60s or even what I knew about of the 50s, people in the same family or with their neighbors sitting around the piano singing songs, you know, that you'd go to a movie and you'd follow the bouncing ball and the whole theater would sing along with what's happening on the screen. People are so self-conscious and embarrassed to even imagine doing stuff like that like that today.
0: Well, because, you know, they've been doing stuff by themselves mostly for the last 20 years or so. so.
1: In, in some ways, I feel like it now that, uh, you know, my daughter's not going to school and no one is, that they're realizing some of the silliness of the school and the program and the curriculum that they've had. I mean, and they're asking things like for my daughter, it started, she wanted to figure out how to roller skate. And to me, for her to learn how to roller skate is a more interesting thing right now than for her to be learning her trigonometry or the fact that she's now interested. Where does food come from? Uh, Uh (laughs) Maybe we should be teaching some normal, regular skills in school again.
0: Well, that'll be another emergent thing is that we will we will now that it's up to us, namely, you know, uh, the parents. We will discover uh, what's important and what's not important. And, and, you know, we'll follow our noses there. I mean, and not to be anti-intellectual about it,
1: but she gets to choose her electives for the next school year and her sophomore year of high school. And she changed, you know, from Latin to sewing. And it made me think of you and, and Suzanne and other people who know how to do real things. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, she wants to learn something that has actual value in the
0: world. Of course, that, that <laughs> has dangerous implications of suggesting that there actually may be gender roles. You know, there really are uh, divisions of labor between men and women that exist for a reason. You know, t- talking about biology
1: is anathema. That, to me, is also part of this artificial specialization of people that's used really to to divide us you know i feel like f- for me the problem of this kind of global neoliberalism is that they also took over the left they kind of divided and conquered the left and they they neutralized this argument about class struggle and labor struggle and the disconnection of the economy with the whole notion of identity politics and nothing against identity. It's fine, but it just dovetailed so well with consumerism that it felt like Now, the people who should be on the same side as me arguing for reclaiming our economy from these bastards are arguing against me because they say, you can't really know my struggle because you're a white male. And I'm saying, wait a minute, I'm a Jew. They used to say that I wasn't white. Now I am white. Now what? And we're totally (laughs) off the subject of how are we going to retake the real world from this artificial corporate sphere?
0: Well, I think that woke politics is going to be as dead as a doornail in five minutes. You know, it'll make your head spin to see how fast that nonsense goes away. And so much of it was utter nonsense.
1: Right. But it still happens. So a, a great friend of mine, this uh, guy, Genesis Peorich, a musician who I've known for 30 years. And I, I knew Genesis when Genesis was a man, then Genesis was always into a very anomalous behavior, sort of a a, a renegade Satanist, you know, uh, uh, in the funnest sorts of ways, just trying to break people's uh, expectations. And then Genesis and his wife decided that they would go on this weird experiment in pandrogyny to play with their genders and get weird surgeries and do things. But I wrote this uh, uh, kind of eulogy to Genesis. And throughout, I changed the sort of gender classification, the way that he was... Went to a she, went to a they, went to an, you know, and someone then criticized me, or a few people criticized me. How dare you write about Genesis without their preferred gender pronoun? And I'm like, who the fuck are you? I was friends with this person. I know the preferred pronoun. And if anything, what Genesis was trying to do was to break those distinctions, both from those who would categorize in traditional genders, but those who would categorize them in these non-traditional. The last thing this person wanted to do was check a box to have a gender identity. Yet the gender police, if you will, can't help but then attack that.
0: Well, it's it's full of uh, ironies and contradictions and self contradictions. But uh, I think uh, we will we will realize we'll look back at that kind of behavior uh, as being a luxury of uh, the luxury of no boundaries, the luxury of not having boundaries, and for good or for ill human beings need boundaries they need to understand where some things begin and some things leave off and uh, i think that it's it's a true sign of a decadent society when it becomes utterly devoted to as the highest value the smashing of boundaries and now you know we're going to be done with that because we're you know the the new conditions and the new disposition of things in the world will compel us to create new categories of things and new boundaries and places where there are limits and places where you you actually can go no further. And uh, that'll be an interesting transition for us because we're coming from a very decadent place of, uh, and a very destructive place of having no boundaries at all.
1: Right, Well, I don't think we realized it was as decadent when we went into it. I mean, part of it was all that kind of French postmodernism and everything becoming relative. But we didn't know it was fun. It was stoned, you know?
0: <laughs> well, decadence you know, de- decadence is largely based on the idea that whatever's fun is okay. You know, and that's 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 right. essentially a childish idea. There, there there are times when children have to you know stop looking for fun and seeking fun, and uh, they have to you know work hard and and uh, take on arduous responsibilities. A lot of those things are not fun, although they can be mitigated. You know, one of the things I noticed so clearly, I went out to Wisconsin two years ago to do some interviews for the book that I just finished, you know, that just got published, living in the long emergency. I was interviewing a, a particular organic farmer out there. And, uh, so, you know, we were, go- we were traveling around going from one part of the county to the other. And we went through, uh, a particular township out there. I guess it was in Cache County, Wisconsin, uh, that, uh, had a lot of Amish people in them. And the contrast between these uh, agribiz farms on the one hand, where, you know, guys are driving million dollar tractors and watching videos while the machine automatically plows the field for them and they don't have to pay attention. And the, um, the, the Amish people where, you know, they had these hay wagons full of young people, young men, mostly going off to work in the morning with all the fellowship of being able to work with each other that's probably a better way of mitigating the necessity of work, you know, than watching a, uh, an idiocracy video in your in the cab of your tractor while you're plowing forty acres, and it's encouraging to know. I mean, and and I go
1: to the real America too and see real people doing real things. Um, it's it's encouraging, and it seems to me if there is a kind of a uh, there, there's this time, there's next time, and there's the meantime. Um, a lot of what you talk about is what we can do in the meantime to make ourselves, you know, more resilient as the number of shocks to our
0: collective system, you know, increase and get more intense. This involves individuals making choices that are very basic, like exactly where am I going to live? Am I going to choose to live in Brooklyn, which is going to become a a a rapidly and increasingly unviable place to make a life? Or am I going to look for uh, a a role in a society in a small town uh, that is surrounded by good agricultural land that has a possibility of feeding itself? You know, these are the kinds of pretty fundamental decisions and pretty, pretty heavy decisions. You know that people are going to face, and uh, to some extent, they'll seem unreal because somebody who has crafted their life up to the age of twenty-one with the expectation that they're going to work a uh, commodity swap desk at Goldman Sachs, and they discover all of a sudden that that's is foreclosed to them you know, it it will never have occurred to them that their future may may lie in agriculture at some level of it, either management or labor or or ownership, or something in between, you know?
1: Right. I mean, when people are asking me about the fields, especially, you know, I'm teaching in a college, what can I do? There's a few fields they can go into that will work no matter what. Growing food, education, healthcare, shelter, and basic contracting, to how to build. Basic Uh, engineering.
0: uh, I mean, we're going to need to put together much simpler mechanical things, to make up for the lost gigantic scale of the things that we're not going to be able to run anymore.
1: In world made by hand, I mean one of my favorite passages, I think it's in the in the second book where they really go into it is when you describe how they got the water working in the town. I mean with the benefit of gravity and then how do we get it to go up over here? And that there's people there hopefully enough people left to n- remember the basic mechanics of water and gravity and physics to, you know, accomplish these things. I
0: think there are plenty of people who understand that that's that's one of the that's part of the capital that we are going to retain is that we're going to have a lot of human knowledge and and human smarts you know I've been watching
1: a lot of Trump on TV lately and I empathize with him a lot i mean I think he's gotten such a, a bum deal from the the you know, cable news press pulling stuff out of context where it really went over the top was once he said about Israel or some some dispute and how he was trying to solve it. He goes, well, I guess it fell on me. I'm the chosen one. And they take that out of context. The chosen one. Trump says that he's Jesus. Trump says that he's Jesus. They spend like three days on Trump says that he's the chosen one is a, a wink to the evangelicals. And I'm like, you guys are just Friggin' lying at this point. And it's not fair to even what he does wrong to, to do that. You know, it covers up what he's actually doing wrong.
0: Yeah. I've been in a strange position myself for the last three years because I didn't vote for Trump and I'm not a Trump cheerleader, but I think that he's been really badly abused. And, and I think that his adversaries have behaved much worse than he has. His adversaries have behaved abominably in bad faith and with the most unbelievable dishonesty. Right. Which is
1: why when then he gets warned, whatever, two or three months ago that, oh, this virus is really coming and you've got to do something, you've got to I can understand why he did not believe them because they've been lying to him the whole friggin' time.
0: Sure. Including, including, uh, you know, officials in his own government.
1: Exactly. So now he looks at it, I mean, with his sort of Norman Vincent Peale faith over matter mindset, you know, that, that we can think and grow rich or, or mind, you know, this mind yeah. over matter understanding. And I beat the impeachment. I beat Mueller by just talking and and believing so the virus i'm going to leave my way through that and this one though of course it turned out to be a real bug you know there's real real viruses i feel like on the on the good side you know the reality of this could help People see the reality of climate, that that's not just a scientific hoax.
0: You know, there'll be, you know th- that whole thing, that whole bundle of uh, uh, issues, including whether we're capable of being honest and, and acting in good faith at all, you know, uh, have yet to be played out. And uh, it's among the many things that we're going to have to contend with as we move into this new disposition of things. You mean being honest with each other, face yeah, to face, yeah, about the importance of being an upright person and telling the truth and and acting in good faith and not and not simply being, uh, you know, an antagonist willing to win by any means necessary, no matter how dishonest. You know that's what's been gone going on for the last several years. One of the really fascinating angles of this is the the strenuous campaign that's going on now to pretend that Joe Biden is a viable presidential candidate. This is like the ultimate act of bad faith and dishonesty by that group of people. But it is just an unbelievable act of, you know, the emperor's new clothes. Absolutely everybody in the country over the age of 12 can see that this guy gone in the head and also corrupt. And yet, uh, you know, the idea that that they're pretending that he's a Uh, a candidate rather than just a placeholder for something is uh, incredibly it's incredible and it's insane. I know it's sad to me. It is sad, except I don't feel sorry for Joe Biden. Joe Joe Biden's been kind of a, a, you know, a crooked player for a long time. Um, He's not going to get my sympathy. I just wish he'd step off stage, you know, do the honorable thing and doing the honorable thing is a part of acting in good faith. Right. But there's dishonor all
1: over the place. I mean, my email inbox is filled now with friends who have ideas for things to do, I guess, during this crisis, but they're such cynical grabs for attention. Like, oh, I could make a PSA, you know, a, a public service announcement about this or that. And I'm like, well, okay, do you have any research to show that that's a message that needs to go out or people want to make apps. Oh, I'm going to make an app that's going to help frontline workers in hospitals can upload the things that they need. And then people who have things can then go to the app. And and I'm like, well, look at this Google Doc that's already up isn't that doing it? It's like, oh, yeah, but the app, you know, and then my company. It's like, yeah, your company. So <laughs> so people aren't even legitimately looking at the problem. They're looking at the problem as an opportunity yeah. to promote their wares.
0: Yeah. Well, we may have entered the just shut the fuck up phase of this uh, crisis.
1: Right. Hopefully, just shut the fuck up, you know,
0: and, and cook your food, You walk around, maintain yeah. your social distance. Be kind to somebody. Which is, shouldn't be that hard. Well, you know, it, it is hard in a crisis when absolutely everybody is terrified, and that's the nature of a crisis. But, um, you know, that's the honorable thing to do. That's the good faith way to behave. And w- one of the themes in those uh, World Made by Hand novels is that everybody is weighing each other's character in terms of how upright they are. That's the term they use. You know, is he an upright fellow.
1: Right. Or is he a picker, you know, which yeah. is the real fear. These guys that just take all your stuff, yeah. you know, and you've got to look in their eyes and get a sense of who they are, yeah. you know, which is an ancient painstakingly evolved social mechanism for establishing trust. That's almost, you know, diffuse. It's, it's almost God in modern society,
0: but it's also based on, on visible behaviors that people adopt because they signal uh, exactly what is called for uprightness. And that, that is why people feel mo- most deeply betrayed by those who are pretending to be honest and upright and, and then are discovered to not be. And what you demonstrate is that people can be upright, even though they have different understandings
1: of how the world works. Yeah. And even if they're not very appealing. Right. But the governor guy, the sort of the seemingly fascist guy, he's upright. If he's nothing else, he's upright. The religious crazy people, they're upright. The townspeople, they're upright. You know, each world there's upright and non upright people. But the way we've been segmented to believe people who are different from us are not upright is really the big crime uh, of both ends of the political spectrum right now.
0: Yeah, well, I just don't think that's going to go on a whole lot longer. You know, we're going to need everybody to put their shoulder to the wheel and get this society back up again, perhaps in a different posture. Perhaps we will be walking forward differently. And let's hope that it is in a more upright posture.
1: Most common email I'm getting from friends now is such a strange question. It's, should I have a gun? Mm-hmm. Isn't that a weird one? I mean, it is isn't. it's not. I mean, I guess people are thinking that if they're in their home, they're going to have to
0: protect it from like motorcycle gangs of people trying to take their stuff or. Well, if nothing else, you know, a, a character in one of my earlier books made the remark that a piece in the closet is a great comfort. So. Uh-huh. Psychologically, uh, you know, I think that there's some value in it. I happen to have the New York State Conceal carry license um, and I have some handguns. I think people are envisioning these scenarios where they would have to use it. That's right. And maybe they will. Uh, yeah, it's an unappetizing thought, but it is nonetheless a thought. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to invest in a in a wrist rocket. I had
1: one of those when I was a kid. And I promise you, with a nice half inch steel ball bearing, you <laughs> can well, kill someone my, very easily with that. It could do some real damage. You bet. And my family, if, they, if everyone in my family had a little wrist rocket pulled back, I'm sure that someone coming to the door is going to think twice.
0: <laughs> well, it's an interesting image. Uh, it sounds a little bit like a political cartoon, but. Uh...
1: <laughs> the Rushkoff family. Yeah. And their, uh, the their last stand of the
0: Rushkoffs. <laughs> wrist rockets at the ready. <laughs>
1: oh, gosh. Jim, it's a pleasure to speak with you, even under, especially under these, under these trying times. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, too. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Living in the Long Emergency, James Howard Kunstler. You can find out more about Jim at kunstler.com. You can find out more about Jim and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter of this show. This is our moment to establish rapport and forge the solidarity we need to sustain our species amongst others. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Be safe, be strong, be kind. We're going into this thing together. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.